0: This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon, you're listening to Live and Learn with me, Dashran Johan. Dr. Kannan Pasamanikam has dedicated the vast majority of his life to his patients. Recently, the good doctor wrote an autobiography titled Joy, Challenges and Hope My Life Journey, where he details well his journey growing up in a small town in Moir, his passion for the field of medicine, and how hope and optimism are important pillars in his life. Dr. Kannan joins me on the show today to talk about his book and his life journey. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kannan. How are you? I'm, I'm great. It's a great day. Thank you. You have been, um, you know, practicing medicine for, for decades now. But I want to yeah. go back um, to the beginning. Why yeah. did you decide to study medicine?
1: I've always been interested in the biological sciences. Hmm. And I always uh, liked interacting with people. Uh, So how do we gel both these interests? So medicine uh, is certainly one field where you can uh, continue your study of biological sciences and this to to do with the human body. And then you certainly interact with people. Uh, I was also uh, inspired by my family, GPs, neighbors, Dr. Chiu. Uh, Dr. Chiu has died uh, many, many years ago, but... uh, I remember him as someone we went to for for everything, for vaccinations, which we were scared of, uh, (laughs) cough, cold, running nose. And then as the parents grew older and they had more important illnesses, he's the one who would uh, provide the medicine. Uh, And then he he was someone who became a family friend and he was also like a savior when we were in trouble, we go and talk to him. And then he used to uh, assuage our fears. Um, And like Dr. Chu, there were... A couple more family, friends, who uh, doctors who came and interacted uh, with us, um, helped us in ways. So I wanted to be like them. Uh, I wanted to do the same kind of work they did and I wanted to be like them. And so I think that's the spark that got me going uh, as far as medicine is concerned.
0: Right. And why cardiology specifically?
1: Okay. uh, Cardiology was just a chance uh, opportunity. Right. See, in the early 1980s, we're talking about 1980, 81, 82, uh, now you've got so many cardiologists in the country. Uh, at that time, in Malaysia, we probably had less than 10 cardiologists, probably right. even less than six. And uh, University Hospital, uh, where I worked as a medical officer then, was uh, probably the leading cardiology uh, uh, center in the country, uh, where it all started. So it was 1982, I was about uh, finishing my training as a medical officer. And there was Professor Katie Singham, and Professor and now he's Dato Anwar Masduki. Right. Uh, they were the senior people there, and they had virtually no one to help them. Uh, and they were looking around, around for young doctors who trained in cardiology, and uh, probably nobody was interested. And uh, so I, w- I happened to be in the ward said, do you want to do cardiology? I said, okay. And uh, so started a lifetime of discovery and fun and I never looked back. I'm so glad they asked me and I'm so glad I said yes.
0: <laughs> it's been about 40 years, you know, since you yes, embarked on this, yes, this journey, yes, right? Yes. Then, you know, fast forward to today and you have written a book um, titled yes. Joy, Challenges and Hope, My Life Journey. What yes. inspired you to write this
1: Okay, many have asked me that question. Uh, right. What got me started on writing? Uh, truth be told, I have been writing articles, which were published both in uh, in the lay press as well as uh, for medical journals for some time. Hmm. Uh, there was always this desire to be an author, to at least produce one book before I died.
0: Why? And, well, where uh, did that? Where does that desire come from?
1: That desire came from you know, as a, as a child, uh, all through my life, I love reading books. And I've got right. a lot of storybooks. Uh, and I think somewhere in the book, I talk about Alex Matthews. My father ran uh, a, a school in Moa. It was mm-hmm. uh, a school where, you know, kind of you drop out uh, from a government school, then you want a second chance. You join some of these private schools and you get a chance to take your exams again. Uh, so, Alex, uh, George Matthews was the headmaster there, and uh, we were very young, and every tibauri uh, George Matthews used to visit us, and others used to bring other kinds of presents, make cakes and stuff like that, but every Tibauri, George Matthews brought a, a storybook, and we looked forward to his visit. Mm. And uh, George died probably about uh, eight, nine years ago, I'm still in touch with his children, and I said that George started us on a journey from the very first book he gave, we read, I was, uh, I was just enthralled. So, um, having read various types of books, uh, there was a bit of, uh, romanticism in me. So <laughs> I wanted to write something like a Tom Sawyer type book, Malaysian right. version, you know, growing up in a small town. Uh, we used to go and do all these things, catch fish in the, in, in the little, um, rivers and, uh, play with, uh, frogs and stuff like that. So, That was always the back of my mind, but i never started uh, doing it. Then I became ill. And, uh, you know, my life as a doctor was always very busy. I hardly had any time for anything else. But when I became ill, I had to be on medical leave. And for one part of my treatment, I'd be on medical leave for three months. So I had a lot of time on my hands. Um, So first I started as a documentation of the medical journey that that I was now going through as a patient on the other side of the bed. Um, and, and I and I wrote about what I was doing every day to a small group of friends who were my support group. And then one day I said, uh, maybe I should write it all down. Maybe I can publish an article about this. Mm. And then uh, one day I was sitting down and said, mm, this sounds a little gloomy. Uh, then, I, then, then it hit me that the life I had led was quite an interesting one. I mean, I grew up in a small town at that point in time when... There were a few other electronic uh, distractions that children have today. Right. Uh, you know, there was a lot of bonding with nature, and so there is a lot of that kind of fun. So, I, I thought about my childhood, so I wrote one chapter, and as I wrote, more things flew uh, flowed out as uh, as my you know as I went back in time. Uh, so, those who read the book uh, will read about a childhood in the uh, early seventies, uh, which is a lot of fun. Right. Uh, and then I added on college where, where I had more fun. Then I added <laughs> medical school when I had more fun. Then I became a doctor <laughs> and I had even more fun. So, <laughs> so, so, so the, uh, finally, the illness itself was, uh, I think, three chapters. One was the illness with the uh, bone, uh, with the blood problem that I had. Uh, and then the recovery and what I decided to do with the rest of my life. And then, of course, COVID came in and affected us in a big way in my family. There were people who died. Uh, and that set back the project a bit because I was almost ready to publish. And then COVID uh, set us all back. So I wrote another chapter about COVID. So, and then we had the book.
0: <laughs> and and I love what I really love about the book. It's like you said, um, it's not necessarily just about, you know, overcoming a life-threatening um, illness which we will talk about later what yeah. i really love about it it's is that you really showed the the beautiful side of life um you know the small things your childhood um you know that it's it's a very uh, humorous book as well there's a lot of quips in it that there are really really it made me laugh as well um, talk to me a little bit more about your childhood dr khanan what was your childhood like um what were your parents like when you were growing up, your relationship with your neighbours? Because I think this part of the book, right, it provided me with a very interesting sort of window into what life was like for people who grew up in that generation. And it gives us a chance to reflect on our lives right now.
1: I am so glad you've said all these things, Dashran, because that is one of the aims of the book. And if you tell me that, I managed to capture that. If I, if you tell me that I managed to get that across to someone who is uh, much, much younger than me, then I think I have uh, one big um, uh, objective of the book has been achieved. So maybe we'll start with childhood first. Mm-hmm. So childhood was, okay, childhood, childhood. I was born 1952. So uh, things I start to remember probably will be at least about, when I'm four or five years old. So probably from about 1957, Mm. Um, childhood, carefree uh, and fun. Like I said, there was no television in Malaysia until I was about eight years old. Uh, I grew up in a multiracial neighborhood. Uh, next door was uh, what we call the Chinese sundry shop. We used to call him right. Akong. You read about it in the book. And Akong in Chinese means grandfather. Uh, I didn't realize until I was in my teens that I'd been calling him Akong and uh, and his wife, Asim, that means grandma and grandpa. So this is what our parents taught us to respect people who are older than us, uh, right. whatever their race. Uh, we, we treated them like family. So that was on the left side of the house and that shop still exists. And then wow. in front of the house was a Malay family. I still remember her as Auntie Ajina. Uh, I think Ajina has also passed away now, probably about eight, nine years. Um, and... Uh, She worked in the registration department. I remember my father saying that some of his relatives who came over from India those days, uh, before they became Malayan citizens, she had a role in uh, uh, helping with the paperwork. So Hari Raya and all that means go over to Auntie Ajina's house, uh, (laughs) help them prepare the cakes. Sometimes it's nasi minja, you help to cook, and then you get a free meal. Um, (laughs) And and, uh, Moa also had quite a big... uh, Sikh uh, population. You know, you go to a Sikh temple for for a meal, my God, you get fed very well. Uh, <laughs> the milk is very good and the and the cakes are very good. So, yeah, a mu- multiracial neighborhood. Uh, many friends of all races and every celebration, diwali Hari Raya and Chinese New Year, it felt like your own family celebration. Basically, we had about four big celebrations including Christmas to celebrate. Right.
0: Um,
1: and, um I remember, for example, for Mooncake Festival, my mother used to buy a lantern for me and my sister, and we would uh, join the neighbors in the procession, that kind All of right. thing. Uh, we played badminton, I roller skated, uh, cycle about the town, and every every evening I would cycle to the riverside. So sort of, kind of an exercise, about uh, four kilometers away, and we used to have a beautiful uh, sunset every day. Uh, whenever I go back now to the hometown, I go, uh, but you are no longer ensured of a beautiful sunset every time because right. of the smoke. You know? So obviously, uh, the world has changed. You know, Absolutely. And like I said, I read many storybooks. Uh, Enid Blyton was one of my favorites.
0: I don't know whether they... Oh, yeah. I Blighton used to read book. Enid Blyton when I was growing <laughs> up as well. <laughs>
1: oh, great, great. So I think I finished just about every one of her uh, books. And then mm-hmm. there's another one called The Famous Five. The Famous Five put a lot of uh, romantic ideas in my head. So I formed <laughs> my own group of friends and we went around a town and we imagined that we were solving the town's uh, mysteries. <laughs> uh, but we had to study. Wonderful. We had to study. But my parents, uh, as I remember, I always uh, have a lot of fun with my patients. You know, um, sometimes you have uh, people who are in their 70s and 80s. They tell you they cannot sleep. And you ask them why? Because most of the time, unless there's an organic illness, it's usually uh, a mental problem. Something is troubling you. Right. And you would be amazed by the number of grandparents who cannot sleep because they are worried about their grandchildren's performance in the exams. I mean, when I when I grew up, <laughs> I don't think my parents knew anything about my exams. We just <laughs> went to, we studied, we went for exams. Nobody cared a hoot, you know. So, so my parents did not push me, but I, I remember that I, from a early stage in my life, I had this fear of failing exams. I didn't want to fail anything, so I remember studying very hard. Uh, I used to make. Uh, Memory cards, even when I was in uh, standard three, standard four, and I used to carry it in my pocket to memorize things. So that was a part of me, even from then. Excellent. So that was childhood. Uh, mm. A lot of fun, a lot of games, but we studied hard as well. Uh, my Do- parents, Yeah. Uh, you asked about my parents, so
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, very supportive, very loving, as I remember. And uh, when my father reached his 70s, uh, one day he commented uh, to his relatives, because... He was uh, quite a senior ma- member of the community and then he supported his siblings were siblings and their children were not not financially successful in India and he mm-hmm. made a big point that everybody studied because he f- felt that there was the only way they could get ahead
0: right. so
1: you know they used to write to him ask for money and stuff like that and one day he was uh, when he we all was sitting around he was probably about 75 and he commented uh, once uh, once I think first time and last time that he said, you know, I never spend any money on my children because they were never demanding. Whatever money is spent on all these useless relatives, that's what he used to say. <laughs> <laughs> he said, hey, we never gave any grief. So uh, I said, that was good. So demands are very simple and expenses were small because there are no expensive electronic gadgets. There was no handphones to buy, nothing to change. Only luxury were storybooks. And then the occasional, I don't know whether they have Beano and Dandy comics. Now and then we had to hide them to read because these were banned in school, and uh, <laughs> my father got to his head that comics were bad, that they were all drawings, and your 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 language suffered. So we were not allowed to read in front of him. <laughs> uh, meals were all cooked at home. We we there was no such thing as going to a restaurant. Uh, Mum was a superb cook, um, and uh, uh, restaurants were unheard of. In fact, we started going to restaurants. Only after I started working, after I married Angie and when we were a couple in KL. Uh, In fact, my mom used to come and stay with us. And on Saturday, she said, where are you all going? I said, we're going out for a meal. She said, why do you need to go out for a meal? There's food in the house. (laughs) You know, I mean, that was her take.
0: Right, right. So so
1: you could really stretch a a dollar. Mm -hmm. The other big thing about the family, I think I've also written, was that accepting for my sister Sundri, we were all Dorian Hantu's. <laughs> uh, my mom was really into Dorian, and I think there are one or two poignant uh, episodes when she was very old and just before she died about Dorian that I've written there. Hmm. Um, and my father was kind of so so, but I was also next to her, I was the next Hantu. That was a yeah. great time.
0: On the show with me today is Dr. Kanan Pasamanikam, cardiologist and author of the book Joy, Challenges and Hope My Life Journey. After the break, I ask him why hope and optimism are important to him. Keep it here on Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Live and Learn. I'm Darshan Johan and on the show with me today is Dr. Kannan pasa cardiologist and author of the book Joy, Challenges and Hope, My Life Journey. So Dr. Kannan, I'm wondering, because you talk about a, a particular time um, of your childhood and in growing up, you know, in a very multicultural society, um, a multicultural community in a small town how did that um, childhood of yours shape your worldview? I mean I think when you grow up in a small town, I think you're you taught to appreciate
1: the simple pleasures in life because mm-hmm. the big things are not there for you. Uh, and you and as you grow I mean I'm going to be 70 on the 1st of November wow. uh, So <laughs> when you look back, you really, you know, I'm sure everybody will agree that the simple pleasures in life are the most important. I mean, all these so-called complex things that people go for uh, really is very transient. Those pleasures are very transient. So they, the small town taught me how to enjoy the simple things in life. And till today, I really gel with nature. I've got a garden and looking at all my flowers and my spirits are really up. And, uh, you know, uh, from from then till now, Nature has played a big role. so uh, And and that's a simple pleasure. It's free for everybody to to see. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh,
1: The small town also taught me good values. And uh, I think many people will agree that the man who lives and grows up in a small town, uh, they are devoid of most of the pretensions of the city man. And they have got less hypocrisies. They're simpler. They're more honest. uh, And they're more willing to share and help. And of course, you change, like you evolve, you you move out of town, you come to the city, you travel the world, and then uh, you imbibe some of the nastiness that you experience in life. But the values that you are taught uh, in your formative years as a young person will always serve as your check and balance and it will pull you back. And I'm grateful for having been born and grown up in a small town with so many uh, adults who kind of guided me when I was young.
0: Absolutely. Dr. Kannan, you mentioned that you are going to be turning 70 in a few months' time. Yes. <laughs> which makes you older than Malaysia, uh, you know, independence and all of that, right? Because you grew, yes. you were born in 1952. Yeah. What? How, how do you reflect on Malaysia's direction over the past few decades? Very sad.
1: Hmm. Very sad. And I've written about this and some of my articles have been published. I think two of the part- articles are in the book. And like many of my fellow Malaysians, I'm very unhappy with the politics of the day. I'm very unhappy with the dishonesty and corruption that pervades our society. And I'm really disgusted that, you know, some aspects of the corruption that is really unbelievable if you think about it, you know, uh, in the the world stage, I think this degree of corruption and this degree of abuse of uh, public money, and, I mean, we used to think that it's the government's money. Until you realize that the government's money is my money. I mean, if I miss out on the paying my tax by one day, I get a hefty fine. Yeah. And there are people who just go and whack whatever I've earned. And I suppose I speak for the majority of Malaysians uh, when we say that we work very hard, we work very honestly, and we pay our taxes on time. <laughs> you know, and they just swipe it. And, uh, and some people have even said that they can be forgiven. And some people have even said that this is the norm. So that disgusts me even more. That tells mm-hmm. us to what levels our society has fallen. It's very sad. Our children have been forced to go uh, to other countries to work because uh, they do not get a fair deal here. And for people like me, uh, I'm probably going to die alone. Uh, without them by my bedside, which I see happening to my patients. So all this depresses me. But I think when you talk about honesty and good, I think we are only talking about politicians. You know, if you, I I interact with a lot of ordinary Malaysians every day. And I can tell you there's a lot of goodness out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, just take the recent floods, for example. Who came out to help them? It was the ordinary Malaysian. It was the nobody uh, talked about it along racial lines. They just came out to help. The ordinary Malaysian is still a good Malaysian. The crooks are all up there. I only wish that we could get rid of all of them and replace them with some of these common
0: guys. Dr. Kanan, at the age of 65, you were um, afflicted with myeloma, a life-threatening illness. Do you remember the day you found out about it?
1: You know, I was completely asymptomatic. I felt nothing. It was just a routine, annual exam. Uh, I do a blood test every year. And this was actually delayed by about uh, six, seven months because of work. And then when I saw the results as a doctor, I knew what I was facing. Uh, There were some numbers that were completely out. So I had essentially made a diagnosis before I, this is not my area of specialty. So I seeked out my friends who are specialized at field. I said, I think this is what I have. And then they did a whole lot of tests and confirmed it. And and, um, people have asked, uh, were you depressed, were you upset? And all honesty, I think the moment of trepidation was probably about 10 minutes uh, when my my the, the person who was going to treat me, Dr. Tay, said, yeah, it's confirmed. And then mm-hmm. after that, for some strange reason, I didn't feel anything at all. I just said, well, I think everything is going to be okay. Because uh, throughout my life, I've been a very positive person. Right. Uh, like I told someone just a few days ago, I've been a very average person, very average student. Uh, but because I had this positive thing uh, when I undertake anything and I always felt that it will succeed, uh, I managed to get a few things done. So same thing with the illness. And, uh, and I think the good thing about this illness was, unlike some illnesses you know, where you have to stop work and uh, uh, go into hospital and stuff like that, uh, this was one where I could be treated and I could do work. Uh, I never stopped a day's work. In fact, I was doing night calls. Although some people said I was crazy, I said, well, I don't feel tired. They predicted I'll feel tired with the treatment. I did not. So I did night calls. And um, I think it was three days ago that a Chinese patient came to see me and uh, that heard about a book. She bought the book and she read it and she said, I'm sorry to hear you are ill because uh, on that day in 2018, when you wrote about your illness, you were in ICU looking after my mother. And you are already not well, you're receiving treatment. I say, Yes. <laughs> wow. so I didn't realize you're not well. So, um, uh, my work was very cathartic. So, I did not have to stop and uh, worry about things. I just took it as met- a matter of fact, quite honestly. What,
0: what does your work mean to you?
1: Mm, I think my work is my life. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a terrible thing, you know. I mean, I, promise, I made a lot of promises. My wife said you broke all the promises. I mean, when I was ill, uh, especially more recently, uh, uh, when COVID paid us all a visit and uh, some members of the family were very sick, I said, okay, I'm going to stop. I'm going to spend time with the family. Uh, work will take second fiddle. Uh, that probably lasted about probably less than six weeks. Lah. Even when I son <laughs> leave, she said, you hey, he went back to work. So, I mean, uh, many people have asked, uh, is there any other way of doing this? I mean, some of my friends or senior doctors have said the same thing as well, uh, that if we had to live our life all over again, you know, one of the doctors I wrote about in the book is uh, uh, Rosalie Watun, is one of Malaysia's most famous heart surgeons She retired at the beginning of the year. Uh, Rosalie has got two sons. And uh, I think as all doctors, we would like one of our children to, to join the profession. So as a walking with the son, one day in the garden, say, what do you want to be? He said, nothing like you, Dad. Do you have a life? And the boy was, I think, seven <laughs> years old. So when we were talking about this, um, I asked Rosalie, if you had to live your life all over again, would you do it any differently? And both of us almost simultaneously said no. We would we not do it any other way because medicines are all or nothing. You have to give your whole, you cannot look back in time and say that, because you had to take some private, private time off, a patient suffered. Uh, so, so it's a very demanding distress. Uh, that's the way we were taught, that's the way we were brought up, and that's the way we worked.
0: Now, moving away from the illness, um, apart from being a medical doctor, you have also been a, a medical, uh, you've taught in medical school. Um, yes. Not everybody does this. Um, why did you decide to teach?
1: Okay, I, th- I think I was fortunate because uh, uh, when I graduated in 1973, uh, you either chose <clears throat> to work in the government uh, Ministry of Health or you could work in the university, where where which was our medical school. Uh, and uh, so you applied to Ministry of Health and you applied to the University Hospital, which was under Ministry of Education, if I'm wrong at that time. Um, and, uh, if you, uh, there's some people, of course, who, who would like to go back to their hometowns, which meant that they, they left KL, they worked with Ministry of Health. In my case, uh, I, my first posting was actually, uh, Kota Kinabalu. the offer from Ministry of uh, Health came very fast. Um, and, uh, 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 my mother started crying and she said, you're going to go away to Kota Kinabalu. We are in Peninsula. And. They tell me they've got a lot of pretty girls there. Most likely, you marry one of them, you'll stay there, I won't come back, and so on and so forth. And so just as she was crying, uh, the offer from university hospital also came said, okay, you've been offered a place uh, to do your housemanship here. So I said, okay, I won't go. I'll stay here. So I think my life changed in a big way. Uh, many of my friends who went to East Malaysia were very, very happy, very, very contented. Many of them have just stayed there. I've gone to East Malaysia to teach. And I'm sure that if I had gone there as a young doctor, I would not have come back. I would have stayed on there. But I uh, worked in the university hospital. I was a houseman. Then I was a medical officer in the Department of Medicine. And um, as I said, for my postgraduate exams, I just continued to work in the university setting. So as you work in the university setting, you quickly become a teacher uh, because I'm medical students to teach at different levels. Even as a medical officer, you, you help. Uh, medical students learn. So um, so as I've written, in the practice of medicine, doesn't matter where you are. Learning and teaching are intertwined. Uh, a doctor is automatically a teacher and he is a student at the same time. Uh, right. It's part of the job. And um, the other big thing was that from my secondary school days, I used to admire my teachers who, who could simplify and explain concepts uh, for me.
0: Right. And I've written
1: about these teachers in my book, uh, several of them. And then uh, uh, in, in college, I had a particularly, in, in sixth form, I had a particularly good uh, uh, chemistry teacher. And uh, he was, only yesterday, in fact, it was surprising, uh, only yesterday uh, a patient came to see me in the late part of the clinic and he had read the book and he said, hey, you went to English college? I said, yes. Uh, and uh, he's about two years my senior. He said, I too went to English college, and you you wrote about his chemistry teacher. I remember him. as was so good. All you do is just sit down, listen to him, and everything uh, became so clear. Uh, so that was one person I wanted to emulate, and there were a few teachers in med school, in particular uh, Professor Dunrach. All of us uh, respected and admired him. Till today, uh, you know, he, almost uh, not a day passes for not some reason you think about him. Um, and uh, I basically wanted to emulate him. And, and as I thought, I found that the, I, I had the ability to do some of the things that they did. I could not achieve their standards, but uh, I was not too bad. So that, that kind of uh, helped me continue the journey. Um, um, as a, when you teach in medical school, there's an even greater goal. You know, you set an example to the younger doctors by, by your behavior, by the way you look after patients. And some, some of my younger doctors till today have commented, they have observed uh, how, how I used to look after patients and they still remember it. Um, so you set an example, you improve the knowledge base of the medical students uh, and you are improving in that process. What you are doing is you are improving medical care that the public will be receiving. And basically, by doing all that, you're amplifying the work that you set out to do. Uh, And in addition, as you teach, you also learn. And uh, learning is vital to the doctor throughout our lives.
0: Hmm. Now, Dr. Kanan, reading your book and even listening to you speak, like you said, you are someone who is a very positive person. You have a positive outlook on life. And even in the book, you you talk about the stress, the importance of um, things like hope and optimism. Why Are these things, hope and optimism, important to you? When you talk about hope and optimism, to me, uh,
1: hope and optimism are twin drivers. Uh, They are absolutely essential for us to have, to see, to fruition whatever you set out to do. You must have it in you. You must develop it in you if you don't have it. You must be surrounded by people who have it. And if you are married, you must be blessed to be married to one who has these attributes. And I'm so blessed in my 40-year marriage to uh, Angie. It mm-hmm. um, uh, gets me a bit emotional when I say that, but it is true. Without it, uh, I would not have got to where I am uh, in everything I did.
0: Now, Dr. Kannan, another thing you talk about, and this is also very interesting, and something that I didn't expect, right? And, and that is, you talk a lot about discipline in the book. Your discipline to school, your disciplinary teacher, the discipline that Dr. Tambu John Danaraj, uh, TJD as you call him, instilled yeah. in you. Why so? How important is discipline to you?
1: I mean, when you're a young person, that word uh, doesn't uh, occur in your head. You know, um, We had very strict teachers uh, all the way from primary school to secondary school. And I must tell you this. You know, I I attended, uh, my father chose uh, in MOA those days, you had high school Mm MOA and you had St. Andrews School MOA. And uh, St. Andrews had the reputation of uh, uh, being a disciplinarian school because uh, Brother Robert O'Sullivan, uh, purportedly a boxer in the British Army, (laughs) was (laughs) there. And he put no (laughs) nonsense. And if you read about it in my book, he walked around with a cane and you got whacked. No parent came and complained. They just whacked you even more when you go home. Uh, so it was a lot of discipline, at school. There was, um, I mean, we we did, I mean, all of us were naughty, of course, but uh, nothing, uh, you know, that we could uh, boast about the naughtiness there because uh, we were really kept in check. Um, right. uh, then, uh, when I finished form five, form six, dad said, you continue this town, you'll be attached to your mother's apron strings. You better get out of here and go to Joe Baru and go to boarding school, which is English college. And the first day I walked into English college, I was shocked. Um, you know, uh, this is a, a double-story uh, classroom. And uh, windows shatter as I walk into the grounds. I still remember it vividly uh, to today. And a chair comes uh, hurling out to land on the ground.
0: <laughs>
1: and I, 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 was, I was shocked. That's it this would never happen, St. because the guy who did it will know that he won't have any skin on his back at the end of the day. So (laughs) then you realize that, you know, you had a very, uh, you had discipline, uh, you were disciplined as a child. Suddenly the importance of the word gels in your brain. So to me today, looking back uh, on life 70 years uh, uh, back, I think without discipline, no one and nothing will succeed. Uh, We need discipline, Uh, discipline is a training of the body to follow a set of rules from a young age. Uh, We needed to train the mind and body. We needed to get up at a decent time in the morning. We needed to clean ourselves and make ourselves presentable to others. And Professor Dundraj taught us that by dressing, what you're showing the patient is that you respect him. I think that's very important. And I think there's one anecdote where I explained that uh, (laughs) how I learned uh, as recently as 10 years ago the importance of dressing to a patient. Uh, you need right. discipline to avoid bad habits like smoking. Uh, you have to be disciplined to exercise, to keep yourself fit, not to overeat. And uh, more important than anything else, you need discipline to put in a day's honors and fruitful fruit work. And all these needs years of training, reinforcement and practice. And um, I think those of us who uh, were born into families where we had good parents who, who guided us well, who instill discipline in us, uh, it's a blessing that we don't realize because there are some kids uh, who are born to homes where you know the father is drunk, the father runs out of the home and uh, there is, they, you, you have no role model to face and uh, if you go wayward in, in, in life, uh, uh, you can understand it completely. And
0: Absolutely. that's where this
1: organization, you know, my skills that uh, where I donated this book, it comes in a big way. Uh, if you read the book, uh, one of the reasons I was trying to find an organization after my father died, he left us a little bit of money and we wanted to do a bit of charity, uh, Sundari and I. And uh, many of the places that we looked at, you know, they were kind of shady, but my skills was good. They took up kids from broken homes, essentially, right. uh, who dropped out of school and gave them a second lease at life. They train you to be blue collar workers and they train them to be technicians, to be electricians, to be paralegals. And they have trained about nine hundred and fifty young people today, and I thought that was a good organization to train. So, you know, if you are not blessed with a family that uh, provides you with discipline, and you don't know the meaning of the word, and you go wayward, you are lucky if you find an organization like this that sets you back uh, on the path in life and gives you another chance.
0: How important of a figure was um, Professor Dhanaraj to you, and what are some of the important life lessons? Uh, you've learned from him?
1: I mean, for those of us, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember when Dhanraj left uh, the university hospital. I think I was third year medicine. That would be 73, 70, probably 1975 or 76. Uh, he had finished a tenure at the University of Malaya and he was going off to set up a new medical school in Jeddah. So for all those uh, who trained the first 10 batches, I think our first 12 batches uh, who studied medicine uh, at the University of Malaya, uh, this this man was larger than life. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, you have to read the book uh, to know a bit about him. I, I there, there is no way I'll do him justice uh, by describing him. Cannot. Uh, you yep. have to write, you have to read. Um, <laughs> and uh, I mean, you asked me about lessons I learned from TJD. Yep. Uh, there are so many lessons, but uh, I think I'll just uh, uh, mention some that stand out. Mm-hmm. Uh, the single most important thing to today is what he told us. Our first duty is to the betterment of the patient. No shortcuts, no excuses, and you can <laughs> your own ego. If you can't do it, you give it to the next guy who can do a better job. Uh, very important.
0: Right.
1: And then he said, control your greed. But I think he won't have said control your greed. TJD would have said no greed. But I think that no greed died with him, in all honesty, doesn't exist anymore. So it depends on the individual person, how greedy you are. If you go into private practice, it's the usual joke, uh, how quickly you want to buy a BMW. Do you wait five years? Do you want to buy it at the end of uh, uh, first year? Uh, So that, uh, in a a cynical way, tells you uh, what medicine has come to sometimes. And... And, uh, most important thing he taught us is medicine is a lifetime course. Uh, you never stop studying. It, medicine progresses daily. And if you want to be fair to your patient, you have to constantly keep yourself updated. And we have to do that.
0: You know, what you brought up, that that cynical side of, of what medicine has become. You know, just reading uh, your book and and you describing um who TJD was, um, who Prof. Danaraj was. Um, one of the interesting things was, you s- said that you were someone who, and I quote, abhorred private practice. And this part, it was particularly a uh, very sharp, sharply written. You know, He said, uh, he called it uh, the prostitution of medicine. When you were considering going to private practice, um, which is a switch you made, how difficult or easy of a decision was it?
1: I can still remember it like it was today, hmm. uh, sitting in front of him. Uh, he had a house up in Pantai Hills, uh, next to Pantai Medical Center. And uh, later in life, we became friends, especially uh, when I became a lecturer in medicine. I used to go once in a while because he was quite keen to see how medicine was progressing, how the uh, uh, hospital and medical school that he had built was faring. So I used to go in the evenings and chat and so one day, with a lot of trepidation, I went and said, Prof, uh, I think I'm leaving the university and I'm going to practice. And he was very, very disappointed. Um, very quiet for a while. And then I thought I was going to get a bashing, he said. You know, Kannan, private practice is a prostitution of medicine.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: that that floored me. But anyway, um, the the decision to leave was not difficult. You, right. know, um, you know, uh, I mean, I've said this uh, over and over again, um, uh, and some people choose not to believe it, that uh, I left because I wanted to make more money. Uh, the, it was a very simple reason. The vast majority of people uh, I worked with were very good friends, were very good teachers who had done a lot for me, but I had to work with one or two characters in my line of work, which was increasingly becoming specialized and it was impossible to work with them because of personality differences and right. I just could not do tomorrow's work because of that and so I had to find another place to go to work and those days all my seniors who retired from the university hospital gravitated to the Jaya Medical Center it was one of the new big uh, modern private medical schools so when I rang around uh, the person who answered my call was uh, Datu Anwar mastuki He had been my trainer and teacher in the university. He said, just come and join us. don't have to look far. And so I just uh, went over to a place where there were a lot of friends. The, my professor of neurology was there. He was a neurologist. My uh, professor, uh, whom I respected a lot, Ashok Menon whom I've uh, written about in the book, he was there. So I was not uh, like a fish out of water. I was back home. And uh, I, I was being treated nicely again and I could work. So I felt a lot happier. But uh, as I have repeatedly told people that the best years my, of my life were in the university hospital. No no doubt about it.
0: Now, you are someone, uh, you know, despite not following um, Prof. Dana philosophy when it comes to, you know, the private sector um, of, of medicine, um, you are still someone who, you know, uh, it's a high, you, you did fantastic work. Um, that's, that's for one. And you are someone who, like you mentioned earlier, that the thing that you really held, together, uh, held with you, one of the, uh, Dr. Uh, Prof. Dhanaraj's words is the importance of patient care. You, you've never veered away from that, right? You, you've stressed on how important that is. Talk to me about the importance of patient care and your approaches to it. Patient care takes
1: precedence over everything else. They trusted you. They came to you. I mean, just like when I was ill, I trusted my physician. I left it completely in his hands. Uh, he could do right. He could do wrong. He could give me uh, half measures. Uh, and I I probably would be a bit wiser because I have some inside knowledge. But, you know, they basically uh, place uh, their faith, their life in your hands. And uh, you have to do it right.
0: Before we wrap this conversation up, because um, this has been a really, really fascinating insight um, into your life, I want to know, you know what lies ahead for you? Because you've talked a lot about you know, your past growing up uh, and your life for the past 70 years. What lies ahead for Dr. Karnan?
1: Okay, uh, Before we address that, there's mm-hmm. one more thing I want to address. A moment yes. ago, you praised me very loftily. You yep. said, I've done fantastic work. <laughs> <I'm>, I, <laughs> I beg to beg to disagree. You know, <laughs> I, I, I don't think I've done anything really great that, that a lot of other people have not done. But, you know, um, I'm not being humble. Uh, don't mistake me. I'm not being humble. I certainly am not. But, you know, there, there are many, many more people. If you read my book, I've read, I've written about several of my friends who have done stellar work. And uh, uh, since there's an opportunity to, to mention, I'll mention two of them. You know, I've written about uh, Dr. Dr. Jairam Menon. You know, he went uh, to uh, Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Sabah, stayed there for 20 years, and almost single-handedly uh, set up one of the best gastroenterology units in the whole country. People go there to train. And that is something that he call stellar work, not what Kannan did. Kannan did nothing. <laughs> and uh, if I'm not wrong, uh, your radio station, BFM, BFM, uh, 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 conducted an interview with uh, professor obinneshwaram mm. uh, if i'm not wrong a week ago yep. and Vicky was one of those who wrote the forward my book and over 20 years uh, Vicky, after coming back from uk built up a superb uh, neurosurgical unit at the university hospital kolombo and they were they these are the guys who have really achieved a lot they say fantastic work uh, these two guys stand out uh, I think the commonality in uh, all these individuals is passion and hard work. And, and that's, that's all there is to say for it. Uh, what lies ahead? Well, I, I plan to continue to work and serve as long as I can. I've cut back on um, the shadow. I no longer do calls since the beginning of the year. People have said, you're 70, uh, you went through an illness, it's important. Uh, getting a good night's sleep is important. I realize that uh, I get tired uh, more now than I did 20 years ago. So I've stopped doing calls, but I run my clinics. Um, and uh, I plan to start work on another book. Um, you know, this book has, uh, uh, you know, ever since I wrote it, uh, the early readers uh, have come up with so many comments that really uh, uh, fill me with a lot of gladness and joy. Um, uh, one friend uh, came over from at uh, Sarawak, uh, and we had dinner together and she bought a book and wanted me to autograph it. And uh, as we were talking, she said, "When uh, she, this is a classmate of mine, uh, Dr. Bibiana Atio. um And she said as a young doctor, she, she had read some of the uh, cases, uh, interesting cases that I described. She said there was this child uh, who was having breathing difficulty. And uh, so Bibiana had to uh, intubate the child. And as she intubated the child, she realized that child's lungs were full of worms and she was pulling out one, one worm after the other. Mm-hmm. My God, I said, you know, in which part of the world do you experience things like this? So I'm trying to get, uh, our class had about 110 of us. And I'm trying to reach out to see whether even 40 to 50 of them can come up with one or two interesting cases like this uh, that they have encountered in their work in medicine in Malaysia. Uh, All of us are about 70. And I said, soon we all will not be around, but this will be a fantastic uh, (laughs) legacy to leave behind. Very interesting for Malaysians to read and for our next generation of students to read. I I hope that book will come out. My father died at the age of 93. And on the morning of the day he died, he went to his office for a few hours. So that tells you there's no (laughs) retirement for me.
0: (laughs) Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Karan. That was Dr. Kanan Pasamanikam, cardiologist and author of the book Joy, Challenges and Hope, My Life Journey. The book is available for sale at myskills.org.my. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Darshan Johan, and this has been Live and Learn, BFM 89.9.